This is the fourth in our series on relationships, and this series is called Union. And so on the first, the first sermon was about honoring one another in friendship. And part of what it means to honor one another is to ask for help. You give other people an opportunity to show honor to you by asking and seeking help. And then second was Austin's sermon about dating, which um, was a little bit of an unconventional take, because as we know, dating in the Christian circles is for marriage. Um, and yet God can use that relationship as, I don't, I don't know if he talked about it a lot, this specific term, but it's a, a vulnerability accelerator, right? It's a vulnerability accelerator, or I think as someone put it, like incubator. It encourages vulnerability in a way that it gives an opportunity for you to share um, your life with another person and be a blessing. And then last Sunday, Micah, Micah Shu talked about singleness, and he gave a biblical framework for how we can elevate singleness as opposed to marriage. And notice that it wasn't, we didn't put the singleness message at the end of the relationship series. It wasn't like tacked on, because actually in the kingdom of God, singleness is, is primary, because that's the primary way. I mean, uh, marriage, in a sense, is secondary, because it's a distraction. You know, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, it's a distraction from knowing God, because you're concerned, but you're, you have worldly concerns. And he doesn't talk about kids, but the example that I thought to myself was, you know, a couple weeks ago, Grant led this cleaning thing um, with uh, shavings from the chairs. Now, um, if you have a worldly concern, like literally you're concerned about what's happening on the carpet, right? And being married and having children, you, you suddenly have this concern, like what is happening, like these little shavings on the carpet. And so that's the example of a, of a worldly concern, even though Paul doesn't talk about children. And so um, that was last week. And then this week, we're going to talk about this topic of sex and gender, which is a super, super difficult topic. And um, as I was planning this series, I thought, oh yeah, I'll do this topic. And and then I realized, man, I think I have gotten myself in over my head. And that's okay, because one thing I really appreciate about you guys as a body is your patience and grace exhibited to one another and also to me. And because I'm not an expert on this topic and because serendipitously, um, there is actually a workshop that's talking about LGBTQ that we just, I just announced um, called LGBTQ and the Gospel at Resonate Church next Saturday. And I plan to be there. I may be a little late. I'm recreating the hike that I never went on, um, the death hike, and I might be a little tired. Um, but Judy will be there. And if you want details about that conference, um, there'll be details on Slack. And then you can, you can see me or you can also talk to Judy. There's a website that you can sign up for. Okay. Um, and so that's, that one-day conference will give a more extensive look um, at how LGBTQ issues can in, be integrated and reconciled and, uh, and people who are, have experienced marginalization in this um, be loved that um, this sermon cannot possibly do justice. And so I will um, afterwards um, be on stage and I'll set up some chairs. And if you wanna have a brief question and answer, I'll be available for probably close to an hour um, to talk more, okay? And of course we can set more time to be able to have a conversation. And just like I said for Austin's sermon, this is the starting point for a discussion, not the end point. This is the starting point, not the end point. And so with that, I just wanna say a couple things. I wanna validate a couple assumptions and also make some observations. The first thing that I want to say is that you are familiar with the traditional Christian ethic. Okay, I want to validate, I want to validate that assumption that marriage is between one man and one woman, and that sex is intended to exist within the confines of that marital union. So I'm not going to cover that in great detail today, but I am going to talk about it. So I'm just going to assume you're familiar with it. And the second thing I'm going to say is that most of you support an attempt to live by that historical Christian ethic. 
Okay, most of you attempt to live by that ethic, which admittedly is a high bar and no one, no one lives perfectly under. In fact, most of us live, all of us live fall short, fall short of that ethic. Um, Third, that you are aware that this historical Christian ethic comes into conflict with many LGBTQ ideologies. You are very aware of that and that much of our culture and academia, including K through 12 education, has those ideologies present. That's my third assumption. And then the fourth one, and this is probably more of an observation, is that you're also aware that this LGBTQ conversation, and when I say LGBTQ, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, um, that conversation is not just happening outside of the church, it's a conversation that's happening within the church. And so when I say that, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to talk about an LGBTQ community over there and the Christian community over here. Those communities overlap. Okay, so when we talk about a Christian community and an LGBT community, they're, they're actually, the Venn diagram overlaps significantly. Um, and probably more so today than ever before. So it's not an other question. This is a we question of how to address this topic. And that's partly what makes it so difficult. So in light of that, what I want to say is I have two goals today, and that is to present grace and truth. In John 1.17, it says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the law is set in contrast with grace and truth. And I don't know exactly all the dimensions of what that contrast is, But I do notice that grace comes first in this formulation, and I would define grace as mercy, as compassion, and as love. So Christianity is predicated on grace, radical grace where you cannot earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to merit being good enough to go to heaven. Christianity is also predicated on truth. And some might view truth as ethical clarity and precision, knowing what is clearly right or wrong. And I'm going to attempt to present as as much as I can a clear view of what is right and wrong in this area. But I think it's also an incomplete definition. It can't just be about ethical clarity. The truth is not always precise or easy to discern. And most of all, there is something about the heart and the mind that encompasses truth. So truth and grace kind of over, there is an overlapping. And it is ultimately about our innermost thoughts. The truth is about how we think. And so I have two purposes today. Number one is to present, present the reasoning behind the historical Christian ethic regarding sex and gender, and then to explain why this ethic is so offensive in our culture. There's some foundational concepts in this ethic that are super, super offensive. And the second is to equip you in grace to have conversations within our church body and outside of it on a dialogue about this topic. So I'll just tell you the sharing quest, the sharing prompt, which I think is pretty difficult, but I, I don't know that it's easy to have a, you, I don't know if it's, I don't know if you can have an easy sharing prompt on this topic. And the sharing prompt is this. What is a question or a conversation that you have had or want to have regarding this topic, regarding the topic of sex and gender? And I know it takes a lot of courage to be able to come up here and talk about a conversation you want to have, uh, but that is kind of the point of our open mic sharing is to exhibit vulnerability and courage in talking about this. All right, so let's jump in to the Bible and you have to start with Genesis. So I'm going to start with God's design for us as image bearers. This is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. 
Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven, heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if you're talking with someone within our popular cultural context about this passage, you may not get any further. This passage is a non-starter for a lot of people in our culture. And it's offensive on multiple levels. First, it starts off with the idea that there is a supreme being, which in itself is not that controversial. But it's a big jump for many people, especially those who claim they believe in science, as if science is kind of like a religion. Um, and so that's already a, a big jump. And second is this idea that this supreme being, God, is our creator, that God has designed and made us. You did not make yourself, and you're not a random occurrence. And that is another jump that people will experience. And then third, there's this idea throughout this chapter and throughout Genesis that there are mandates, that the supreme being who designed and made you can tell you what to do. He can tell you what to do. So it says, let them have dominion. In another section in Genesis, it says, be fruitful. So this supreme being who made us couldn't just leave us alone, but tells us what to do, insists on being involved with our lives, and he gives a purpose. And the, the, the way that we talk about this is God is an authority in our lives. And this is deeply offensive in our culture. And the reason I'm bringing this up is I'm trying to explain why this idea, this this historical Christian ethic is so offensive and it, sounds, it comes from these foundational concepts. Now, you may not think that, but I've been really pondering why that's so offensive. And back in September, 2018, I got to hear Yoda speak at a pastor's gathering. Okay, when I say Yoda, within pastor circles, pastor and author Tim Keller is known as Yoda. Okay, not baby Yoda, but Yoda Yoda. And so everyone's, all of us pastors were geeking out because we're going to listen to Yoda. And he just talked to a, a group of pastors and he talked about this idea of how the world catechizes children. Catechize. And catechize is a fancy word and of course Yoda's going to use it. And it means to systematically instruct. Like the derogatory term for catechize is brainwash. Okay, brainwash, right? And so Keller's point is that the world is giving us a line of thinking and it starts with children. And in line with Romans 12, one through two, which Austin preached about, he talks about, Paul talks about not conforming to the pattern of this world and being renewed in your mind. And the world at its, you can, you can reduce the world to a system of thinking. Okay, a system of thinking. And so the world intends to catechize you. It tends to systematically instruct you. And when Yoda talked about catechize, he meant the following three things, which Micah talked about a little bit last week. Number one, there's these three principles to the world's catechism. Number one, it is be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Number two is to do what makes you happy. And number three, do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. As long as it's consensual. Okay, consent. We talk about consent. So in a sense, it's all about you, what you want. And you are responsible for your salvation. I've been reading Preston Sprinkle, you know, 
as I attended a workshop he did back in 2018, he talks about, he talks about the same idea. Be true to yourself, make sure it's consensual, avoid suffering, don't hurt anyone else. Those are the core values of a secular culture, and those are the reasons why a, a traditional and historical Christian ethic are offensive. And even the idea of God as a creator as an, and as an authority. And so some of you are wondering, is this really how our culture thinks? Is that, wh what evidence do I have to show you? And, I, and you do not have to look far. As of this week, the number one song in the U.S. and the world, and Judy's smiling because I talked about this with her, the number one song in the world is Miley Cyrus' Flowers, okay? And so let me just read a couple lines from this song, okay? 53 million streams this week, 34 million radio plays. Okay, I can buy myself flowers, write my name in the sand, talk to myself for hours, say things you don't understand. I can take myself dancing, and I can hold my own hand. Yeah, I can love me better than you can. I can see some of you mouthing the lyrics because you have heard the song because it's playing everywhere. And you can definitely say to yourself and, and say, you know what, Miley Cyrus, fine. She does not represent me. She does not represent how I'm thinking. You can argue that all you want. And, and I'll probably agree with you, but you cannot deny that this is the water in the culture that we swim in. Okay, because it's everywhere. This is the number one song in the world. Okay, so not even just this country, but all over the world. This is the catechism that our world is exposed to, that children are growing up with. Okay, this is the water, the culture that we swim in. And so when we talk about this topic of sex and gender, you really have to kind of back up. You know, it's really something that I don't know if I would always address. And I think in most cases, I would not address directly because you have to go to some foundational concepts of how do you see yourself. And what Miley's saying is, I can love myself. Like, I, there isn't a design for me. I decide how I'm designed. I decide what my purpose is. And I decide how I'm loved. And I'm the one who is the one who can save myself. Okay. If that's the case, what else does the Bible say about this? Well, let's go back to the verse that I just read. Okay. At the very beginning, it says, God created man in his own image, the image of God who created him. Male and female, he created them. And what that means is God has a created order for identity and relationships. You are an embodied soul reflecting the character of God. What embodied mean is you are flesh and blood. You bleed. And what's interesting is that when it says we're creating the image of God, you think that then what that means, right? Because an image means visual, like we're a visual of God, but God is invisible. So what can it mean for, for us to be the image of an invisible being? Well, you reflect the character of God. God creates, we can also create. We create because one of the reasons is we have opposable thumbs, right? So we are able to create. And, and the things that God is, the intention, the consciousness, the sociality of God in, within the Trinity, those are reflected in us. We have the same characteristics that God has. And not only that, but it says male and female, he created them. Humanity is created in these two sexes, okay? Two sexes, male and female. And so what that means is, and let me, let me pause for a second because I haven't defined sex and gender. When I refer to sex, it can, be two, it can be two meanings. One is like sexual intercourse or sexual expression, which is what, what you do with your genitals. And then the other definition, probably the one I'm going to be referring to most in this sermon is this idea of biological sex. And that is the physical characteristics that denote male or female. That can include chromosomes, hormones, anatomy, 
okay? And then we have this separate idea called gender. And this is where I will quickly get in over my head. But to the best of my understanding, what I understand, what I recognize as the definition of gender, let me make sure I go back to my notes here so I can read it correctly. <clears throat> gender is the social construct that accompanies one's biological sex and also accompanies a wide array of behaviors, expressions, and identities. Okay, that's gender. And so up until about 1955, that's, again, that's my understanding, sex and gender were uh, kind of the same thing. They were the same thing. They weren't separable. Like you have male and female, and then you have gender expressions and roles that went with being male and female. But around 1955, those were separated. And so today, when someone says gender is a social construct, I remember being embarrassed, I mean, this is years ago, I remember to my embarrassment that I was like, no, how can gender be a social construct? Because I was confusing it with sex. I was confusing it with biological sex. But today, gender is all about the, so gender means social construct. That's the meaning of the word. And now there's a whole bunch of complexities with gender. But what we have to be careful of is that, you know, in doing my research, I recognize there are other cultures that have various ideas about gender that, uh, that people today want to label as non-binary or as trans and et cetera. And I think we just have to be really careful about those categories because the idea of gender is a relatively recent concept, again, 1955. And so just like when we say, you know, Austin was talking about, you know, what is the biblical view of dating, right? There is no, quote, biblical view of dating because dating didn't exist. Okay, dating is a category that we invented, right? There's, no, there's, no, there's definitely nothing in the Bible about internet dating, right? There's, there's nothing to that. And so we just want to be really careful when we look back at other cultures and in history to label those as, oh, well, since the Indians had this idea of hedra, that must mean that's non-binary or must map to trans. Now, there are some things that kind of map to it, but we just have to be really careful as we do that because different cultures have different categories and we want to be careful of being anachronistic. So what is the idea here? Oh, and by the way, when I, and there's one more um, idea of this concept called gender identity. And gender identity is probably the most controversial part in our culture. According to Planned Parenthood's web website, it says gender identity is how you feel inside and how you express your gender through clothing, behavior, and personal appearance. It's a feeling that begins very early in life. And in line with the world's catechism, in line with the way Miley thinks and says, is it's all about how you feel. Your feelings and emotions are your reality. And so gender identity is, is placing primacy around those feelings and emotions. Okay, and so what is the message that God is giving us in this Genesis passage? The male sex cannot in himself reflect the character, the image of God. It doesn't capture the full personhood of God. Likewise, the female sex cannot in herself reflect the image of God. Only male and female together reflect the image of God. And I'm not necessarily saying marriage. It doesn't actually mention marriage there. It's just saying these two sexes together, you know, reflect in community what the character and personhood of God is like. And that's this principle of complementarity, that there's something about men and women that kind of, that fit together, that are meant to go together. There's some differences between men and women. And I'm not going to go into that a lot today because there's definitely more similarities than difference, but I'm going to, I'm going to kick that to next week. Okay. I'm punting on that to next week and hopefully I won't punt on too many things. Um, but I have to, cause there's, there's just so much to this. <clears throat> okay. So what then do we do with this idea of image? Let's talk about Genesis two, 
23 through 25. And now we're going to get into this concept of marriage. Then the man said, This set last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his woman, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So first, notice that in 24, it says that man and woman become one flesh. And yes, that's absolutely referring to the act of sexual intercourse, that man and woman, male and female, were designed to fit together, and that's in a physical sense. But this one flesh concept is not just about the physical. It's, all, it's an act of integration. Integration not just physically, but socially, economically, volitionally, emotionally. That's what marriage and union means. Various aspects of our personhood come together in marriage. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, which is the chapter before what Micah preached on last week, talks about joining together with a prostitute. Don't you know, and, he refer, and Paul refers to this passage about one flesh, that there's something else going on in the act of sex. There's something else going on. There's something spiritual, emotional, not just physical. There's something beyond that. And then it's really important. We often disconnect this from the rest of this idea of one flesh. In 25, right after it talks about the one flesh concept, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so when you read in the Bible in its context, it's really important to see how verses relate to one another. And for example, in Genesis 4.1, it says Adam knew his wife, right? Knew his wife. And what it means is to be intimate and it means sexual intercourse. And this one flesh concept is this very important idea, this profound idea that you can be naked with another person and you can be fully accepted. And I would say that's the essence of what God created relationship for, that you can be fully known and you can be fully accepted, right? Nakedness is, the, is this idea of being fully known. And again, I don't just mean the physical. To be, fully, to be naked is to be fully exposed, right? Not just physically, but in every way. And then unashamed means you're accepted, but the nakedness is found acceptable. And this pre-fall state of mankind means that's that nakedness and not being ashamed is this essence of what it means to be in relationship with one another. And yes, it is one of the, it is the essence of what it means to be married. And what I would say, and this is an implication of the text, it's not explicit, that marriage is an institution, but it's also a kind of covering. Because what we're going to see after the fall is that Adam and Eve need a covering. And the way that you can think about marriage pre-fall is it was designed to cover one another. Man and woman were designed to cover one another. They function as a covering for each other in full knowing and full acceptance. But I do want to be clear that it doesn't mean marriage is mandatory. Because as Micah talked about in the New Testament, the focus isn't on earthly family. The focus is on spiritual family. And that ultimate union is the union we have with Christ. That we are designed and made for him and that he is our covering. He is the one who fully knows us and covers us because you need to be covered by a person. And so let me talk more about that in Genesis 3, 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and then it was a delight to the eyes 
and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And I just want you to notice in verse six, you have everything about the world's philosophy. This woman, she was too true to herself. She did what would make her happy and she wasn't hurting anyone, okay? She followed everything in the world's philosophy. And again, the fruit was tasty. It was aesthetically pleasing. It had the power to make make one wise, but it violated God's created order. There's a sanctity that a lot of our world does not appreciate. And God has, when I say sanctity, I mean God has a sequence, has a sacred order for how to present, for how um, we're designed in relationship. And this part of this order is that God says, you should not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's not the only tree. There are a whole bunch of other trees that were beautiful, that had good food. And yet God says, you know what? In my order, I don't want you to go to this tree. And Adam and Eve decide that their authority is greater than God's. And ultimately, rebellion and independence come in many forms, but it's about resisting someone else's authority, challenging someone else's order and design. And there's nothing new here. I mean, this, well, when I say nothing new, this is the first time, but there's nothing new throughout history in terms of people resisting and rebelling against God's order, because we all do that. The beauty of Christianity is also in its ugliness, that sin is both profound and pervasive. It means sin is this kind of disease that infects us at the very deepest level and it infects every person where we are rebellious and independent of God's design to depend on him. So when it comes to sex and gender, then the question is, what, uh, you know, does the world have something to say about that? And of course it does because artists are trendsetters and back in 2015, and some of you are going to be concerned that I spent a lot of time researching Miley, but in 2015, um, there was an interview with her when she was 22 and it says this in regards to her sexual preferences. I'm literally open to every single thing that is consenting and doesn't involve an animal. Well, that's just contradicted. Well, anyways, and everyone is of age, everything that's legal I'm down with. Yo, I'm down with any adult, anyone over the age of 18 who is down to love me. I don't relate to being a boy or girl, and I don't have to have my partner relate to a boy or a girl. Okay, so that's her philosophy. And, uh, and I hope you see that extends, I mean, that's, that may not be true today. I'm, I want to give, give allowance that this was, what, eight years ago for Miley, and that's may, she may have evolved from then. But even the flower song tells you how she got there, right? Like, like helps you understand a little bit insight into what she's thinking. And so this idea that you can decide, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, you know, you just be true to yourself, and you can sleep with anyone as long as they're consenting and over 18 and not an animal, okay? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's where our world's philosophy has gone. And again, I'm not... Um, I just, again, I think it's easy to distance ourselves from Miley and say, hey, you know what? This does not represent my own thinking. But again, this is the culture that we swim in. Now, in Genesis 3, 8, it says this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And what I love about this passage is that it highlights something we, we understand about shame. Because in this passage, Adam and Eve are actually not physically naked. They're wearing fig leaves, and yet they're hiding. And what it speaks to is that there is a dimension of shame that goes beyond the physical. Absolutely, shame has a, phys- a physiological response. But what this passage is also teaching us is it goes beyond the physiological. There is a social aspect to shame that you do not want to show your face. And this is a universal experience of brokenness. As I've been talking here about sin and rebellion and the fall, this is where brokenness is introduced. And from this point forward, every person experiences disorder in the way that they have relationships. And one of the consequences of that disordering is this byproduct of shame. And I've thought a lot about shame. Shame is the opposite of honor. It means to lower someone's status. It's the physical and emotional experience of having lower status. And I want to branch off this topic of of being found naked and just think about what are the ways in which people are exposed as naked today? And when I talk about nakedness, there's no more place of nakedness than the area of sexuality, okay? In the area of sexual behavior, in the area of sexual orientation, for, for, for various reasons that I'm not going to get into, because of the sacredness of the way sex operates, there is a unique shame associated with sexuality. And so let me just give three examples. The first one is pornography. Pornography as a form of disordered sexuality. If there's something that is pervasive in our culture today, it's pornography. Back when I was growing up, in order to view porn, you had to like, you had to like get your hands on print media or VHS tapes. Most of you don't know what those are. Okay, there's like about this big, it goes into like a machine and, and, um, and you had to find a way to view it and then they had these things called adult bookstores where you had to go in and like secretly like hide yourself and hope no one else saw you um, as you're trying to rent, you know, um, an illicit DVD, not DVD, but VHS and then DVDs. Those are acronyms for um, older Blu-ray. <laughs> okay, in order, now today, you don't have to go very far to view pornography. In fact, it's probably possible for someone to view pornography right now in the middle of the sermon because you can watch it on your phone and nobody would, a- would be able to know. Very few, I mean, you could probably just wear a VR headset or something like that, you know what I mean? And you can experience pornography, right? Um, and this idea, pornography is actually probably one of the most alluring things in our culture because it represents everything our culture is about. You know, breach to yourself, you're not hurting anyone, and it's all about fantasy. It's all about doing something different from the image of the way God created and designed relationships to work. And that is something for sure um, I've been tempted by and struggled with. And I think a lot of you have, a lot of you have shared your stories with me, and it's just something super pervasive in our culture, and I just have to mention. Um, and I appreciate the way um, some of you have just really modeled accountability and vulnerability around this topic. And I thank you for your courage for that. And I just want it to be known that, you know, I'm going to talk about, you know, same-sex attraction and transgender as part of the sermon, but like pornography is way more pervasive, right? It's way more pervasive. It, it, it cuts across, especially for men, a, a very, very high percentage. Second thing that I want to talk about in terms of um, things that, that are, that are disordered is same-sex attraction, okay? Same-sex attraction. And what I want to say is that attraction is complicated, and that attraction and lust appear to be different. Jesus indicates in the Sermon on the Mount that to look at a woman with lustful intent 
is someone who does that is committing adultery. Is that the same thing as attraction? My opinion is that it's not, that it's not. It would be safer to say that attraction is a temptation and temptation isn't chosen, but how you respond to temptation is a choice. With that being said, none of us experience attraction as a choice. Okay, attraction is something that happens. And now again, I'm not trying to say that you, know, you have no control or no influence over what you're attracted to. What I'm trying to say is it's complicated. Okay, your genetics play a role. Okay, whether you're male or female plays a role. Your environment and your upbringing plays a role. The social media, the things that you are exposed, you expose yourself to, the environment that you're in, the culture that you swim in shapes what you're attracted to and who you're attracted to. And so my main point here is to say, we don't, ex most, we don't experience attraction as a choice and gender stereotypes absolutely play a role. The media that we consume and socialization absolutely play a role, but you don't necessarily experience it as a choice. Second, uh, or third, I'll talk about, I want to talk about transgender. Transgender is an alt umbrella term for persons whose gender identity, gender expression, or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth. Now, that's a complicated way of, and there's other terms that related to transgender, including gender queer, gender non-binary, gender diverse, and I'm just really starting to learn about this process. And a subset, and I didn't realize this, but a subset of those who identify as transgender may experience something called gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria. And what gender dysphoria means is this discomfort, I think the definition is psychological distress with one's biological sex. And in the, big, in the past five years, the biggest change I've observed in the area of trans, trans is gonna be, means transgender, is I have a number of friends, I think four, four friends now, whose uh, adolescent children or adult children identify as transgender or non-binary or have transitioned. And I think the reasons for this uptick are complicated. And I'll talk next week about how gender stereotypes may have contributed to this phenomenon. But again, one thing I wanna emphasize with this topic is that people that experience gender dysphoria, discomfort being in one's body, it's not experienced as a choice. It's not experienced as a choice. And then if I were to make a comment about all three of these areas, that Christians who view porn, who experience same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria, often have one thing in common, and that is this powerful and intense experience of shame, of being found naked. And the Christians that I've talked to and I heard about who have same-sex attraction, identify as gay or lesbian, who experience gender dysphoria, have an experience of deep shame, of being found naked. And that's why in these communities, it's called coming out because it means coming out of hiding, right? It's, it's just as Adam and Eve were, they're hiding and they may be physically clothed, but coming out means to expose oneself, to be vulnerable and to have courage. <clears throat> and so if someone is having a conversation with you and, and, and is coming out to you, then please recognize that it takes a lot of courage because there is a deep shame associated with this. There's a nakedness associated with this. And ever, all of us have a journey that navigates experiencing deep shame. That is, the, uh, that is the byproduct of the fall. We all have a journey where we walk through shame and we all need a covering. 
And so what is the solution for us then? John 8, 1 through 11 is a fascinating encounter between Jesus and a woman caught in the act of adultery. And throughout history, women have been subjugated and abused, and this woman is no exception in that she is a pawn used to trap Jesus, and she's dragged, likely half-naked, humiliated and ashamed in front of the Pharisees, where they ask him, the law commanded us to stone adulterers. What would you have us do? And let me note that Jesus does not do what we as evangelicals are often trained and tempted to do, and which is to say, do you know what you did was wrong? Are you aware that this violates the traditional historical Christian ethic, okay? Jesus does not say that, which is probably, you know, a big temptation that a lot of us can experience. <clears throat> Instead, what Jesus does is he writes with his finger on the ground. I don't know what he wrote, but I have a suspicion why. Because as Jesus is writing on the ground, where is the gaze of the crowd going? It goes away from the woman who is ashamed, and it goes to him. It goes to the writing of his words. And I think this is a metaphor for what Jesus does on the cross. He takes the attention of the world away from our nakedness, away from our shame, and points it to himself. And so the lie of this world is that you can erase or prevent shame. The lie of this world is that you can, you can prevent shame from ever happening. I, I had one of my kids attend a curriculum at Stanford called Heart to Heart. It's a sex ed curriculum. And one of the goals of that curriculum is to make sure um, all, types of, all types of sexuality are destigmatized. You remove the shame. You remove the shame from pornography, remove the shame from masturbation. It, just take it away. And yet, what Christianity says is that shame is a byproduct of where expectations and reality don't come together. Okay, they don't connect. There's this yawning chasm between the ideal and between what actually happens. And the solution within Christianity to bridge this gap is the covering of Jesus. The covering of Jesus. In Genesis 3.20, it says, 3.21, it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So an entity, an animal, is sacrificed so that Adam and Eve would no longer experience nakedness. Their fig leaves were insufficient covering. They needed a, an, a being to cover them. And then in Romans 7, 7 and 8, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The beauty of the gospel is that forgiveness bridges the gap between expectations and reality and that we can become new creations and be ushered into a new reality. And God has given this covering in a person. And that's why marriage images God's relationship with his people. Husband and wife cover one another, but in the gospel, Christ covers the church. So what then does it look like to cover one another? What does it look like? What does it mean for us to cover one another? What does it mean to, to have conversations? I want to give three points, three application points for what this might look like. Number one, it is to affirm the good in one another. The gift of LGBTQ activism is deep compassion and vulnerability. Now notice I say activism, I don't say the community because those are not exactly the same. The gift of that activism is that it is deeply compassionate and vulnerable. That this effort to reduce and erase shame is meant to alleviate pain. Because shame is painful. 
And there is something deeply compassionate about that. And we can affirm the good of that. Because I am inspired by a lot of this activism's deep compassion because it's compassion and empathy in a way that I don't understand. And there is a view to the fringe, to the marginalized, that LGBTQ activism has that a lot of the church doesn't. And that is deeply admirable and honorable. And we can affirm that. And so I encourage you, in your conversations, would you affirm what you see as good? That's just super important. Super important in listening. The second is to express curiosity about, about each person's journey. Each of us, like I said, have a unique journey in navigating shame and brokenness because that's the universal human experience. And those who wrestle or have same-sex attraction or transgender have a unique type of nakedness and shame. And there's a story behind that. So let me, uh, let me give one practical, I think it's a practical suggestion regarding preferred pronouns. I'm not in a role where I'm required to use preferred pronouns. No one's ever asked me to use a preferred pronoun. Some of you, maybe a lot of you, work in, a, in an environment where you are required to use preferred pronouns. Now, so what do I recommend? I think in most cases, it's, it's a good thing. I think it's a type of covering, okay? It's a way to cover other people to use someone's preferred pronouns. And what I'd encourage as, as a way to start a conversation, and I know this is not an easy question, and again, I don't have a lot of, ex I don't have experience with this, but I might ask someone, hey, can you tell me the story behind your preferred pronoun? And you could start by saying, I know everyone has their own story for their preferred pronouns. Can you, can you tell me about yours? And for a lot of you, that might seem like a really personal question, but if they're asking for a preferred pronoun, if it's on their Zoom you know, name, that's a public thing, right? So there's something, there's something actually very public. It's like saying, hey, tell me the story behind your name, right? Because this is a type of naming. I think it's a legitimate question to ask someone for that story. But I know it requires a level of rapport um, and care and concern and safety to be able to get to that point. That's why it's important to affirm what's good. And then maybe this is just too incendiary, just too inflammatory of a topic to approach. I would actually always steer conversations to more foundational ideas like, who gets to speak into your life? Who is the authority to speak into your life? Because that gets to the question of authority. What's that person's relationship with authority? Or how can you tell when an emotion or a thought is accurate? Or what power do we have to influence our emotions? Those are all foundational questions that get to the worldview of this culture that we swim in. <clears throat> Last point, point one another towards Christ. Jesus won't erase shame. He cannot prevent or stop brokenness. He won't instantly make temptation disappear, but he can cover shame. He's capable of doing that. And Jesus brings healing in so many ways. And the ways that he brings healing is through relationships, is through acceptance, is through forgiveness. And so would you love people and point them to Jesus? Walk alongside another person. Ask for help to understand someone. Ask for help to give an opportunity to honor them, an opportunity for them to honor you. Because we are all on this journey, navigating the brokenness and disorder of this world and trusting Jesus to make us whole. And if this sounds like, it sounds like discipleship, yes, that's exactly what it is. It's just discipleship. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're doing. We're just discipling one another. We are walking with one another and pointing each other towards Jesus. So in summary, there are ways in which we can begin to have this conversation. And I know a lot of these areas that this, the world and what the Bible teaches are not, are at odds and, and irreconcilable, but there are things that we can affirm and there are ways we can point people 
people, uh, each of us, one another to Jesus? Will we do so knowing that we are covered ultimately by him? Let's pray together. Father God, the Christian ethic is a high standard that all of us fall short of. And we live in this tension of brokenness and disorder and shame. And so, Lord, we cling to the covering of your son today who forgives us, who brings wholeness. And so, Lord, would we have deep compassion for one another? May we affirm the good that we see in others and in our culture. Would you teach us to be curious about one another's journeys? And would we point one another towards you, Jesus, the ultimate covering? who is the embodiment of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.